Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the sixth in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. We're living in challenging times. While that doesn't necessarily make our era any different to any other, a look at any newspaper or news programme in the past few years will tell a story of immense economic, social and political upheaval. People driven from their homes across borders by war. Countries divided by referenda. Truth and deliberate misinformation jostling for position online and in the media. Recent events in the United States have grabbed headlines around the world, once again putting the treatment of the black community into sharp focus. Ireland itself hasn't been free from social change. Two referenda, marriage equality in 2015 and the vote to repeal the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution in 2018, delivered resounding mandates for a more compassionate and equal society. These two campaigns were marked out by a vibrant and creative activism which engaged people of all ages and backgrounds up and down the country. Filmmakers of both documentary and narrative film have always been at the forefront of documenting and in turn inspiring social movements and galvanising audiences. Ava DuVernay, Spike Lee, Ken Loach, Michael Moore, Ken Burns, Kelly Reichardt, among others, have brought acclaimed films to the big screen, which have prompted fierce debate and reaction beyond the cinema foyer. To discuss the role the film has played in mobilising social movements and her own activism, I'm delighted to be joined by Alva Smith, who played leading roles in both the marriage equality and repeal campaigns, and recently featured in Anna Rogers' documentary When Women Won. Alva, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's, it's a real pleasure, Stephen. I want to start by going back in time a little bit, Alva. What's your first memory of going to the cinema? Well, that's a very, 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 very long time ago. I used to go to, I lived in Rathmines, and we used to go to the, the, the Stella, the Great Stella, and also the Printer, the Princess, which was um, up the road where the Leisure Centre is now. And I didn't go there so much because it was kind of cowboys and Indian sort of films, but I did go to the Stella a bit. But, you know, I think my first real cinema outing was when I was about 11, my mother brought me to see, I mean, this is just amazing for me. She brought me to the Astor Cinema to see a, a performance, you know, a filmed performance of Madame Butterfly. And it was like a rite of passage. It was a kind of growing up moment for me when I was taken to see what was very definitely an adult film. And of course, I fell in love with opera. I sort of fell out of love with Puccini later, but I still remember that film very, very vivid, vividly, whereas everything I saw in the Stella is kind of a blur. <laughs> it's a lovely memory because it was also with my mother. It was, it was lovely. Was there a huge interest in cinema in the Smith household? My parents went to the Pickies every Monday night. That was their kind of outing night. And uh, we went to the pictures pretty well, I suppose, really every Saturday afternoon. We were shunted out of the house and we used to walk down to Rath Mines or we'd maybe walk up to the Classic or the Kenner in Harold's Cross or the Classic in Terenure. And I suppose we, you know, saw all the films coming out at that time, which, you know, you need to bear in mind that we're talking about the 1950s here, Stephen. So please do not ask me to remember what films I saw then. <laughs> but the extraordinary thing is that there were all these local cinemas around within 
the kind of now stipulated five kilometers of walking distance that we could go to all of these places. And it was just, it was just brilliant. And you got your, your money to get in and then you had money to buy sweets. It was just part of your whole social life. It was knitted into the fabric of your life that you just went regularly to um, the pickies. And it was a great way to grow up as a kid, you know, it really was, because you also went with your pals. You didn't go on your own. And I used to have to bring my brother with me sometimes. He was two years younger. And I enjoyed that a lot less. I know you studied French and English in UCD in the mid to late 60s. Um, French film is hugely important to IFI audiences. So I'm interested as to whether you had a sense of that cinema of the French New Wave, and particularly around the time of May 68. Yes, well, I mean, I knew it was incredibly important. I mean, again, because my memory is so dreadful, I'm not terribly sure that I connected specifically with 68. I mean, 68 for me, I was actually in France that year teaching in a little school in in Normandy and uh, I used to go up to Paris, but that was very much to do rallies and to feel that I was a participant in what was happening. I hardly understood what was happening, but it was a very important time. But I mean, certainly there's no doubt that what was happening in French cinema was really important to me and remained important as the the women's movement began to develop because I came to feminism and an understanding of feminism, first of all, through French politics and French feminism, which was really very interesting. I mean, I knew, of course, what was happening in the States and in um, in Britain and eventually in Ireland. But my, if you like, my reading and my films and so on tended to been French. And I do remember, I'm not sure if it was in 68, but I remember being in Paris and seeing a film by Chantal Ackermann, who was Belgian, but made this film, Jeanne Dielman. And I had never been to a film which lasted for three hours. This film was three hours long and that in itself was really remarkable. And there was no particular plot. The whole film is about a woman being in her house and being being a housewife, being a femme de ménage, all during that three hours and her occasional reflections on this. So it's extremely slow. It was a kind of cinema verité or something. It, I had never been to that kind of experimental film, I think, before. So that was something which which made a huge impact on me and which made me see and really understand the complete absurdity of the lives that women had to live. This, this supposedly work that we were doing that was just repetition, repetition. And I think I was probably reading Simone de Beauvoir around about then as well. So it all slotted in because, of course, you know, one of uh, Beauvoir's points precisely is that the problem with housework is that you've got to do the same thing every single day, every week, every month, that is just repetition, repetition, repetition. So there's no space for imagination. There's no space for creativity. And then another film, which was probably a bit later, um, Agnès Varda was, of course, a very big name in French cinema and uh, really a hero for for feminists in France and, and elsewhere in Europe. She was an absolutely extraordinary woman, Varda, and a brilliant filmmaker. But there was a film I saw, it was probably in the 80s, early 80s, mid-80s, called Vagabond, Vagabond which was absolutely extraordinary. It was about a young woman who looks back on her life. She's died 
but but you have all of these flashbacks to her life. So it's very, very interesting structure, the film. But she lived her life as a vagabond. She lived her life as somebody who was simply on the road. So I'd only ever seen road road films that were about men and dropouts and vagrants were always men. And here was this woman who nonetheless, there was texture and richness and relationships and love and aspirations and dreams in, in her life. And I can still see the, the face of Sandrine Bonner, who, who played the vagabond, very vividly beautiful young woman who played this kind of wayfly creature. And I could go on about that film. It, it really made a big, a very big impact. And around about that time, I was reading uh, women writers in France like Nathalie Sarraute and perhaps particularly Marguerite Duras who had a very cinematic uh, way of writing and it, it was a kind of mind shifting, mind changing period of time for me, the 70s and the 80s for very obvious reasons because that was when the, the women's movement in the 70s was very, very active and in the 80s I was doing a lot of thinking and writing and investigating and exploring and also uh, becoming aware of issues to do with my own sexuality. I'm interested to talk a little bit more about this era of the 70s and 80s. Obviously you'd seen films by Varda and Ackerman in Paris but film distribution back then isn't what it is today. So when you returned to Ireland, did you find that those films were missing, the ones that had originally inspired you, that they just weren't available here? Yes, that, 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 that's very true, actually. I mean, I don't really remember what films I saw here, if I think back to the 70s and the 80s. I mean, that's partly my memory. But I do, I do know that one of the things I loved when I went to, to London or when I went to Paris, and, and because I was then teaching in French studies in UCD, so it wasn't just I'd been a student, but I went on to work in that area. So it was kind of my, my job and my responsibility to inform myself culturally, which was a wonderful responsibility to have. Uh, so I did go to France very regularly. And I also went to, to London very regularly. My partner at that time um, was English, and we went to London a lot. So it was really important for me, for example, to get to the BFI or the equivalent to get to art cinemas. And that was, you know, absolutely part of what you did. But I mean, I think things did eventually begin to emerge a bit more in Ireland. And um, I mean, there were a couple of cinemas. I, I remember what was that cinema where um, the Sugar Club is now. They did uh, really uh, interesting films. And there were also, of course, women in this country who were absolutely pushing at the door of film. And I think particularly of somebody like Lilia Doolan was absolutely incredible. I mean, she really opened up pathways for women in film and long before she became director of the, the film board. But she was hugely important. But I remember very vividly in the 80s, the films that Pat Murphy made her film made which was about the north of ireland that had you know a very 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 big impact this was something which she had been observing she was being to college in the north that she'd been looking at and tracking and looking at what was happening to women at that time and she made she made Maeve and eventually got funding for it i do recall that it was a massive struggle it was in its way of course a very 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 political film and i think actually i always 
always really liked very political films. And she went on then to make another film called Anne Devlin about a 19th, um, she was a 19th century revolutionary. And that was a different kind of film. It was obviously historical. It was a very beautiful film. And then subsequently, much later, she made a film about um, Nora Barnacle. James Joyce's wife. Uh, she's a, an amazing filmmaker, Pat, and she was also brilliant at mentoring younger women who were coming up to a film. So, you know, that kind of emerging world of really, you could call it feminist film in Ireland, was, was really important in the 80s, even if it was really difficult pretty well impossible for women to to get their films produced. But there was a lot going on at that time. It was very vibrant because the 80s, the women's movement was off the streets in the 80s, pushed off the streets through dreadful economic recession, which people sometimes forget about, I think, or never experienced that, obviously. But they were very, very tough years. And I think we kind of we tried really hard to push out the boundaries in um, in cultural terms. So it was actually, I think, really a very important period. And also the kind of work I was doing in women's studies at the time in Ireland, where we focused a lot on what women writers were doing, women artists, women filmmakers. Uh, all of that was was really important. And I know that when the Women's Studies course began in UCD in the 1990s, that while it focused on gender politics and gender policy, that it was very much refracted through a cultural lens. The programme recognised by UCD, the MA programme and subsequently a diploma and all that kind of thing, that started in 1990. Um, That was, you know, the year that I actually set it up. But it went back to 1983. I had come back from France um, just before the... Eighth Amendment referendum. And I'd been there at the beginning of that campaign and then again at the end. But in the meantime, I'd been in France and I came back determined to start women's studies in Ireland in UCD. I mean, there was women's studies beginning to emerge, but I wanted it in UCD. And what we did was to set up a women's studies forum, which invited feminists to come in and talk about the work they were doing. And whether that was in policy or whether it was in poetry, both were equally important. In fact, we had a huge poetry series and then we had an artist series. I remember people like Alice Marr and Cummins. And that was really important so that when we did set up Women's Studies, when it did then start officially, if you like, in 1990, uh, our our history and the kind of Women's Studies programme we were was very political and very culturally oriented. So I think it was I think it was a great all-round organic kind of programme. There was no part of uh, life that we wanted to leave untouched. That's not to say that we did do everything, but we didn't want anything to be left untouched. You alluded to it there briefly. Um, obviously, this was a, a time of great kind of professional development and academic development, but I know that there was it was a great period of change for you personally as well, and that there was a couple of films particularly that had a very uh, personal impact on you. I've heard The Mermaid Singing by Patricia Rosema and Go Fish by Rose Troche. Tell us a little bit about um, the experience of seeing those films for the first time. Yes, well, I can't remember exactly when I saw the Patricia Rosima, but I think it was probably very, fairly soon after it was made. And it could have been at a lesbian and gay festival here. I don't remember exactly when gays uh, started, but it was probably around the beginning of the 90s. And I'm pretty sure it was at one of those festivals that I saw that film. And it's a lovely film. It's also really funny. It's about 
it is about women and it is about their love lives, but it's not necessarily primarily about that. It's about a very naive uh, young woman who's a photographer who goes to gets a job kind of by accident in the art world and ultimately sort of discovers how incredibly uh, fraudulent the art world is. But the thing is that the fraud is actually being uh, carried out quite successfully uh, by two women who are lovers. So she becomes, if you like, acquainted with the art world and its complexities, but also the complexities of lesbian love and lesbian love affairs. And I found that absolutely fascinating. You could say that it was almost almost as if it was kind of instructive. But the wonderful thing about that film is that it is so, it's so witty. It's so amusing. It, it has a lightness, a touch about it that was really wonderful because, you know, lesbians just were, I don't know, people couldn't say the word and it was kind of heavy duty and the only time you really did get to see lesbians was kind of dead or something on, on cinema. And here you had this film which was not light-hearted but was made with a kind of lightness about really interesting topics that I didn't come across every day in my life. Beautiful filmmaker, absolutely beautiful. And so that was really important. And Go Fish, which came out a bit later, and I definitely saw that at a, a lesbian gay film festival. It was, again, about, it was about a bunch of lesbians who live their lives, everyday lives in Chicago, and they fall in and out of love with one another. But it's not about so much about their sexuality. It's more about them as individuals and as part of a group and how they live their lives. And a little bit like, um, although the films are not at all the same, but it has a kind of, it has a wit about it and a humour that I thought was, I remember at the time thinking, this is so smart, this is so cool, this is, this is just so much about all of the ins and outs and nuances of our lives that people who don't know how we as lesbians live our life, they don't get it, they don't see it, they think of us as pe people with horns on or something, but it was almost a kind of ordinaryization. Being a lesbian, being a dyke, uh, somebody I think once described Go Fish as a kind of dykorama because they're all kind. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I mean, for me in the mid 90s, that was pretty instructive because I mean, I didn't come out until the end of the 80s. And when I say I came out, it's not that I'd been in the closet in the 1980s because I absolutely wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had various heterosexual relationships, but then I met a woman and fell in love with her. And interestingly, the woman I fell in love with, and needless to mention, it didn't last very long, but she was, she was an academic in film studies and she absolutely loved black and white. And I'm not sure if she didn't introduce me to, I've heard the mermaid singing. She very likely did actually. And that at least I have to thank her for. I remember when GoFish came out first, the, t the talk around the fact that women could actually produce a film all by themselves was such an, a huge <laughs> point of discussion at the time. Well, mind you, when you put it like that, of course, and that's so true, and it was a film which is very much made on, you know, an absolute shoestring of a budget. I do know that. Uh, there was a kind, and there's also a kind of informality about it, which probably comes from that shoestring approach, but uh, which is very engaging and totally charming at the same time. That, that uh, you know, when, when you say that, it does 
bring home to us that even though there's so much that we have to tackle and confront and challenge in the world, my God, you know, it grows every day. But at the same time, some things have changed. And uh, while it's still very difficult for women filmmakers in many respects, I mean, nobody would dream of implying that a woman cannot make a film. But all of those women that I've been talking about now, they were out there as absolute pioneers. They were on pioneer territory and they had to fight for every single dollar and every pound and every penny that they got to make those films. It was quite a big story around Go Fish that actually the, you know, the big film companies wanted Go Fish because it was seen as marketable. And that was the period when, that was the 90s, when we were coming into this huge marketization uh, for niche groups and that uh, lesbians and gays, because I mean, trans people had hardly even been thought about or mentioned or whatever at that stage were seen as a market group just as films began to be made for women as a market group but it's kind of interesting what you're saying about women filmmakers because you know people say oh well what about Thelma and Louise you know isn't that a great feminist film and I'm saying yeah but it's made by a man Or Alien with the, the, the incredible Sigourney Weaver. Not a film that I particularly like, but I don't like sci-fi, actually. I have to admit that. In many ways, I'd like to think, and I like to think that I, as a feminist, am really open to kind of nearly whatever. But when it comes to films, I still have that thing that if it's made by a man, my question is, why wasn't a woman making that? Why did the woman who wanted to make that film not get the money for that? You know, <laughs> It's probably unfair. And I can imagine people tweeting and say, oh, she's very narrow-minded, isn't she? I don't care. That's actually what I think and what I feel still. And it's there in relation to film because it was so hard. It was so hard. Um, I want to fast forward a little bit because obviously I mentioned at the start that you feature in a couple of documentaries that we've we've shown at the IFI recently, the 34th and also When Women Won, which um, was recently up on the IFI player. And I suppose what's really clear in those documentaries is how the whole idea of visual media has evolved um, in relation to activism. That uh, if you look at When Women Won and the footage of the original 1983 referendum, it's all news media and it's all RTE and it's all the press. But very clearly it, it has shifted those two films are really interesting in that they are both, if you like, when Women Won was was commissioned by us in Together for Yes and Anna then made the lovely film. The 34th was made independently by Linda Cullen, but very much working with Marriage Equality, the organisation. So, uh, you know, it was interesting that in both our campaigns, we felt that it was incredibly important to leave that filmic record if you like or at least a version uh, a version of of that campaign whereas before you did a report you did a book and of course we did do books and we did do reports for both campaigns but at the same time film was really important and that I think comes from that perception that both of those campaigns were themselves very uh, driven that the one of one of the drivers key drivers in each were in fact the visual media, particularly social media. Increasingly, I think between 2015 and 2018, you even see the difference, how important uh, video had become. It was important in the Yes Equality, the Marriage Equality campaign, uh, absolutely, and, and very brilliantly done. But it had grown exponentially 
I don't know, by a multiple of what, five, by a multiple of 10, by a multiple of 20, I don't know. It had become absolutely ginormous by the time we came to the repeal the Eighth Amendment campaigning. So um, that in itself is, is kind of a, a, an interesting reflection. I do think it's really important for us to have those records there and, uh, and indeed other films about both of those campaigns. I mean, there is another film um, about the repealed the eighth, uh, which is simply called the eighth, which is uh, just been launched in Canada and the US and will eventually come here, which was made quite independently of Together for Yes. But, you know, there will be, I think, many, many filmed versions of those. And interestingly, a new film, which I haven't seen yet, although somebody told me the other day, you can get it on uh, YouTube. So it's, it's on my list of must watches immediately, is, of course, the, the new film about abortion, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which is Eliza Hittman's film. And it, although it's, it was made in the US and it's about the US, it was actually inspired by the story of Savita Halepanavar. Um, and it, it absolutely it did a bomb at uh, Sundance in January. I mean, it was really warmly greeted. So I think that's really interesting as well. So you have these various films coming out I love the 34th and um, I do actually very much like when, when women won. I kind of feel I shouldn't say it because we commissioned it, but I do like it. <laughs> I think both films capture important things about each of those campaigns. And they were very different campaigns, but you know, and they just managed to capture something of the spirit of each of those campaigns. We're recording this at the start of June and we can't not talk about when we're talking about films and activism about what's happening in the US at the moment. There's obviously uh, once again a huge social movement and I know you've picked out two films in particular that you're very fond of that you wanted to talk about in relation to what's happening over there. The first is uh, 13th which is a film by Ava DuVernay. Yes absolutely and and this is I mean a really very very remarkable film about that whole intersection of race and racism with the whole system of incarceration, imprisonment, the whole justice system really in the US. And I would have to say it's a very shocking film, but I was watching a bit of it again the other evening, actually, when when the riots started, because it really does give you a real understanding of just how brutal the treatment of black people is in the US. I mean, we, we know, we do of course know about police brutality in Europe. Of course we do. I mean, we have sadly encountered it from time to time in this country and there is racism here in Ireland. Oh my goodness. But this film really gives you, kind of see where the levers are and you hear such wonderful witness being borne by the people speaking about that whole process and experience of incarceration. And it is, I mean, it is an absolute disgrace. It is a complete disgrace. And how any of us really have allowed this to continue, it is just disgraceful. It is just incredible. I absolutely welcome these uh, protests now with so many placards saying peaceful protest, peaceful protest, and yet they're being told they're being arrested and they're being uh, carted off to prisons and so on. And I mean, that is completely unforgivable, absolutely unforgivable. And the other thing to bear in mind, I think, and that Ava DuVernay's film really makes very, very clear, all of this pre predates Trump. We're inclined to say, oh, this is all because of Trump. 
Trump is an inciter, but he didn't invent this. He didn't invent this system. This is about a whole, a whole socio-economic cultural system, which he is the symptom of that has produced him. He is a product of that system, but he did not create this system. So, you know, it, I think if you watch Duvernay's film, that it's just called 13th, you, you really get that. You really get that very, very strongly. I mean, I, I just like to mention in, in that context that there is another very, very, very interesting film, which was, I think, released in 2012. And I, I'm not sure where you can get it now. It was by Shola Lynch, which was about Angela Davis. And that it's a sort of a story of Angela Davis's life, really. And she, of course, was the great... Uh, Marxist and feminist um, activist and it's called Angela Davis Free All Political Prisoners because she was way back when arrested for a botched kidnapping in which ultimately two people did die but she was acquitted that was at the very beginning of the 1970s but it's a very 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 fascinating story and to see Angela Davis there you know condemning the racism and the brutality at the beginning of the 70s in the US and all her co-activists, her fellow and sister activists, it's very, very, very powerful indeed. And 13th, by the way, is on Netflix, and so is the other film I wanted to mention, which is Knock Down the House, which is a documentary which was made by Rachel Lears and came out, I think, just after the, well, it was made during the 2018 elections in the US, and it follows four women candidates, Democrat candidates, three of whom didn't get elected and one of whom did. And the three who didn't are very, very interesting. There's a coal miner's daughter, working class woman. There's another working class woman who's a nurse and another woman who, who lost her daughter in terrible circumstances. Very, very sad. The fourth and their stories are really fascinating as they go campaigning in their particular areas. But the fourth person is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So that is, of course, a very, very interesting story. And I mean, you just know from the moment you see her that this woman is is remarkable, unique and, and remarkable, just kind of presence about her. But um, it's very straightforward documentary, but at the same time, really, really, really well made. And you see them interweaving and interleaved in the film, fighting for what they call progressive politics, what you know, I would like to think of our good socialist left-wing politics and a socialist left-wing system. And each of them saying we need a new politics in the US. And it just makes that point so incredibly strongly. It's, I really recommend both of those films. They're not incredibly long. They're both on Netflix. Please let me recommend those. I'm just going to recommend a third while I'm at it, which is called another, it's also on Netflix, um, a film which came out in 2018, a documentary called Reversing Roe, which gives you the whole background to the Roe versus Wade story that there's so much talk about now in the US. And because, you know, race is that huge core systemic dividing line in the states and abortion is the issue that has been weaponized to pit right against left so i think um it's also a, a really interesting film for anybody who's looking for a bit of background and it's very interesting in itself highly recommended just to finish up alva we don't use the term guilty pleasure on this podcast because there's no such thing but um if you're looking to watch something at home that you're looking to relax with on a friday evening or saturday evening what is your what is your go-to favorite film oh gosh uh, 
well, kind of nearly anything. I love documentaries. So all the ones I've mentioned, <laughs> but I'm also, I really do like Gandhi Noir still. So currently I installed all four on my laptop and I've got all of these water presents, <laughs> Gandhi Noirs. But I did say to myself there recently, but I was actually watching a French Gandhi Noir, if you see what I mean, called The Passenger, which is uh, really rather gruesome but also made with great flair and sophistication. <laughs> I, I do recommend it. I did say to myself, God, this is going to twist my mind. I've got to stop watching these things. So I am now open to suggestion. But I think, I think that was for that period that I hope we're, we're beginning to emerge from slowly. Because what I really want to do I want to go to the movies. I want to go to the cinema. I want to sit there. I want to chat about it with a friend and have a glass of wine afterwards. And I and I want to go to the theatre and I want to go to concerts and like everybody. And I worry. I think it's and I I you know I think of all those people who've made all these brilliant films and they're having to find other ways of doing it with great ingenuity. But an awful lot of us just want to get back there and go to the movies again. <laughs> I promise you we're working on it. Alva Smith, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. While race relations rightly dominate the new schedules currently, filmmakers across the world continue to highlight many pressing issues and inequalities through their work. IFI Head of Cinema Programming, David O'Mahony, joins us again now to talk through some of the most powerful recent examples of this. David, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Stephen. It's good to be here again. Alva Smith has just been talking to us about Ava DuVernay's brilliant documentary, 13th, and you have another Oscar-nominated documentary based around the writings of James Baldwin. Yeah, that's correct. This is I Am Not Your Negro from 2017, I believe. Is it a documentary or is it an essay film? I mean, that perhaps is a, is a question for another podcast, but I certainly think it falls between those two terms. It's not a straight up documentary. It's not you know, Talking Heads investigative documentary. This is looking at the writings and material that James Baldwin was preparing for an, uh, an unpublished work. I mean, he died in 1987 and this work was never published, which was to be, to be called Remember This House. And then that James Baldwin was reflecting upon the uh, assassination of three seminal figures of Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr., all of whom were assassinated within five years of each other. And he uses that as a, as a construct really, to look at, as James Baldwin often does, he's a social commentator about race relations in America and has been throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s up to his death. And he looks at these three assassinations uh, in the framework of race relations in America, as well as delving into you know, various other fascinating discourse. And the film, as I mentioned, is more of an essay rather than a documentary. So it's full of archival clips of Baldwin, but also clips of classic movies and cinema that are used in a very, very interesting and unique way. But one of the keys to the film's success is the narration of the uh, material that was to ultimately make up this unfinished book, uh, Remember This House, and that is narrated by Samuel L. Jackson. I really inhabit James Baldwin's writing and his inner mind, his um, inner monologue, I should say. In a, it's, it's very, very powerful. It's very impactful. It's not the usual rambunctious and flamboyant Samuel L. Jackson that we're more very familiar with. This is a very ruminative and very contemplative and soulful and deeply mesmeric almost narration from Samuel L. Jackson. It really brings James Baldwin's work to life. It's filled with kind of a quiet 
rage, a quiet power, you know, railing against this ongoing, never-ending situation that Baldwin sees, um, this race relations in America. And ultimately, one of the great successes of the film is it makes you instantly want to run out and buy everything that James Baldwin has ever written. He's so compelling. He's such a fascinating voice that um, I, I really think he's, uh, he's an inspirational figure. And it's an extraordinary film. Again, I don't know whether to call it a documentary or an essay but, or hybrid, but um, it's, it's a really singular work. And it will certainly speak to the times we are experiencing now. As you say, for a film that's based on writings, it's, it's beautifully constructed from a visual point of view, the way they incorporate uh, quotations from, from the original materials. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's, I imagine it's, it's, it's constantly a struggle and a battle for directors to visually replicate the written word. I mean, it's it, either for two fundamentally opposed art forms, cinema and literature, and they both have huge recommendations, and, and, but they're experienced very, diff- very differently. And I think it's to the film's credit that it, it makes the written word come alive in a cinematic and a visual way through, like, it's a very sensory experience. As I look back to Samuel L. Jackson's narration, the visuals, the archival clips, it's, it's, a, it's a collage, it's a mosaic. And I think Raoul Peck, the director, really manages to, you know, capture the soul of his writing, the essence of it in a cinematic way that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't undermine it. I think it, I think he serves the writing and it's not, um, he's, he's not playing lip service to it. As you say, it is a singular work. I Am Not Your Negro is available to rent from Mubi, iTunes and Sky Store. Moving to a different part of the world, we're going to go to Saudi Arabia. We are. We're going to go to The Perfect Candidate. And this film was out earlier this year. This is the fourth, I believe, film from Haifa Al-Mansur. Now, she came to prominence back in, I, I'm, I'm going to say 2012, I think it was, but, um, it's one called Wajda, which was the first feature film made by a woman in Saudi Arabia. So it was a very historically significant film. And that was a wonderful film about a young girl who enters into a Quran reading competition so she can win a bike. And, and that in itself, bicycle being very symbolic of freedom. So Haifa Al-Mansur went to Hollywood, made a couple of films, and now she is back Saudi Arabia with The Perfect Candidate, which is again a tale of female empowerment, this time for an adult who's a doctor in local hospital. And it, it's, a, it's one of those very simple setups that's very effective. The road leading to the hospital is so unkempt and so unpassable. And when it rains, nobody can get near the hospital by vehicle or foot. And she can't take it anymore. She's sick of it. So she at first accidentally and then properly runs for local election, essentially just so she can do something about the road. If nobody else is going to do anything about it, she's going to have to do it herself. So it's a, like it's fundamentally a tale of female empowerment and her just like, taking the reins of her own professional destiny. And the film follows her on the campaign trail and the various discriminations, uh, both professional and personal, that she experiences on, on a day-to-day basis and her striving to rise above it and to to get the vote. Uh, in parallel to that, her father is a local musician and he goes on tour. And what that does is it allows Haifa Al-Mansur to populate the film with some really terrific live music sequences as well. Because it, it, if I'm <laughs> through my description, it sounds quite dry. It actually isn't. It's a very entertaining film. And those musical sequences make it very, very light at times, even though this is a very... Um, you know, politically charged, socially charged tale of female empowerment in contemporary Saudi Arabia. What kind of impression of Saudi Arabia are you left with at the end of the film? Well, it's hopeful. Um, I mean, it's certainly rife with discrimination. I mean, it's, the film is is taking her example, and I mean, there, there are many, many scenes. I mean, very early on, there's a scene which is which is very telling, where you know, as as I mentioned, she's a doctor and she is she's tending to a man, um, but a male patient, but he refuses to allow her 
to treat him because she's a woman. He can only be treated by another man. So those little instances in the script um, allow the director Hafez Al-Mansur to depict a country that is rife with discrimination, but through the actions and the the determination of the central character, it does it does sound a note of hope. Haifa Al-Mansur is the perfect candidate is available to stream from Curzon Home Cinema. Housing David has obviously been a hot topic in Ireland for a number of years, but a documentary from Swedish director Fredrik Gerten, which we showed at last year's IFI Documentary Festival, shows just how widespread a problem it actually is. Yeah, yeah. Um, as you mentioned, we had a wonderful screening at IFI last year at a documentary film festival. This is Push by Fredrik Gerten, and it follows the UN Special Rapporteur on Social Housing, that's Lilani Farha. It says she's travelling the, the globe in an attempt to understand why homeowners are being pushed out of cities and why cities are no longer functioning as they were intended to and are no longer being used by homeowners. And it's a really, really fascinating investigation into affordable housing and why affordable housing is not defined as a human right. I mean, house prices are skyrocketing and incomes are not. And there's a huge disconnect there. And she's investigating, but, you know, as far from, from you know, London, New York, etc. And there are huge tracts of these cities that are lying vacant essentially as investment uh, properties. The buildings themselves are making money, but nobody can live in them. And, you know, it's her increasing sense of outrage at this, at this situation. Um, it's, a, it's an eye-opening documentary and uh, like it's, it's gripping, but shocking. And I think anybody who's, everybody really, who <laughs> can, can relate to it on some degree, certainly with the property market in Ireland has been on the top of everybody's conversation lists um, for as long as I can remember. So a very, very powerful documentary. And then from the Irish perspective, from a narrative point of view, we have, of course, from a script by Roddy Doyle, Paddy Bratnock's Rosie. Yeah, Rosie, in a sense, dramatises the issue in, in microcosm. If the documentary push can be seen as kind of a macro, broad strokes look at it on a world level, Rosie is down to the, the granular, like it's one family's experience of this issue. And often that's the best way to communicate a story that's so big to you know, it's, it can be kind of overwhelming to grapple with, but Paddy Brannock uh, from Roddy Doyle's script manages to get to the the, the the human core of of this issue, and it is a very human story. It's one family who are displaced, and it's like a day in the life of Rosie and Mo Dunford. Her uh, Rosie played by Sarah Green, of course, and her husband Mo Dunford, and their day to day struggle with trying to find accommodation for that night. So it's her daily grind of trying to find a hotel, a B&B, anywhere. And often they end up in their, the car becomes their home. So yeah, it's, it's a devastating story, powerfully told and powerfully acted. And as I say, it's, it's, a, it's a, an interesting counterpoint to the documentary Push. They will complement each other very well. Push is available to rent from pushthefilm.com, while Rosie is available from Google Play, iTunes and Volta. David, we're going to finish on a film which, like I Am Not a Negro, is set in the past but still has huge relevance for ongoing struggles, and that's Robin Campillo's acclaimed 120 BPM. Yes, this centres around the ACT UP activists group, which were most, and they're, they're still active, of course, but they came to prominence in the 90s during the height of the AIDS epidemic. And this is uh, set in Paris in the early to mid-90s during the height of that epidemic. And they're essentially campaigning against a pharmaceutical company, one of many of, of their campaigns, but this film focuses on their campaign against a uh, campaign of agitation against a pharmaceutical company that are refusing to reveal their findings on potentially effective new drugs. And it's quite a long film. For the first third, say, it's very much concerned about the the dynamics within the group, debates about their approach, should be kind of, you know, nonviolent protests, what would be the most effective. And to that end, it almost has a, a kind of a documentary realism. There's a real sense of 
authenticity. And that comes, I, I would imagine, from Robin Campillo having himself been part of this group and being very active in ACT UP. It, he's, he said it's not a directly an autobiographical film, but you can really feel the authenticity of the, the dialogue and the characters and in the engagement. It all just feels real. It just jumps off the screen. As the film progresses, it becomes a, a romance of sorts. Uh, there's a, a new member to the group, uh, Nathan, and between him and Sean, who's one of the founding members of the group. Sean is HIV positive and Nathan isn't, but then they form a relationship. So that kind of forms the backbone of the story as it progresses and becomes ever more emotional. And again, it's a wonderful way, kind of like Rosie, as we mentioned earlier, of, um, of dramatizing a very broad issue. It's in the, the microcosm of their relationship. The film kind of focuses on, on, on how that progresses. I think what's really striking about this film, as you mentioned, are those scenes where they're discussing the forward movement of the group, that these meetings, they're quite long scenes, but they're completely engrossing. Very long. And I mean, as I said, the first, say, third of the film, it's all dialogue. It's, it's the group having those debates with themselves of the best method of approach. And it can only have come from Robin Campion's personal experience. It feels too authentic. It feels too real. And there's, like, there's some fascinating details there that, that couldn't have been scripted. They, they have to come from reality, such as if somebody makes a point, people click their fingers rather than clapping. So it's not to kind of drown out the, you know, not, not so the noise of clapping would drown somebody out. So it's a very respectful, it's a very respectful approach, um, I thought, to some, in, in a debate context. But yes, it feels incredibly authentic and it has that documentary, that note of documentary realism and authenticity. Well, that's why we're catching 120 BPM is available to rent from Google Play, iTunes and Volta. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Stephen. I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. But the Negro in this country, the future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they are going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. 